This is not a banjo question podcast, although we could pivot into that. Oh, God. Hey there, Shabamaniacs, you're listening to another episode of the Shop Talk Glee edition. I'm Dave Rupert, with me is Chris Coyer. Hi! Hey, Chris. <laughs> yeah, man. Hey, we both play banjo, don't we? Yeah, I've been playing a lot of banjo lately, actually, just because I got a little You know what club. the difference between a banjo and a chainsaw? Do you know what the difference between a banjo and a chainsaw? I'm going to guess it has something to do with lobbing it into a dumpster, but... No, a chainsaw has a dynamic range. (laughs) Hey, what's the difference between a banjo and a chainsaw? What's that, Dan? You can turn off a chainsaw. (laughs) I should be playing the, the, like, uh, Arkansas Traveler, like... (laughs) How do you tell if the stage is level? Oh, how's that? The, The drool comes out of both sides of the banjo player's mouth. Hey, hey. <laughs> what did the uh, banjo player get on his IQ test? What's that? Drool. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was the it was the like what is the what do you what do you call it when you toss a banjo into the to the dumpster? A, a perfect pitch. That's what oh, a perfect pitch. Why do people uh, uh, take an instant aversion to banjo players? Why is that? It saves them time in the long run. <laughs> hey, Chris. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> What's the difference between a skunk run over on the road and a banjo player run over on the road? Oh, God. You see skid marks in front of the skunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was hey. the darkest one, yeah. Yeah, that one got pretty dark, Hey, But... <laughs> Good thing I have this website of like 3,000 banjo jokes. <laughs> this could be a long anymore, episode. If you go guys. see a bluegrass show tonight, they'll do one of these on stage. It's not a it's not a it's not an old art, you know. Oh, it's I love I love live uh, and well. Hey, I love it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. All right, hey. We got uh this is not a banjo question podcast, although we could pivot into that, but um we got, we got uh, uh, some questions. Yeah, a Q&A show for to. everybody. You know, why not? Let's just keep it back to the basics this week and answer as many as we can. As a matter of fact, we'll probably do that for a little while here, just as, you know, life is, is kicking in a little bit for the spring. and It's a little easier to schedule these, so let's just do it. Yeah, well, but first, I'd like to check in on uh, Magazine Corner, favorite section. The Magazine Corner! Uh... Coming back to 132 Secrets of the Most Successful People. Uh, uh, oh, this I, was a little segment you've been highlighting doing for a while. Highlighting our friends yeah. James Corden uh, was, <laughs> was the first one. Uh, and then uh, Donna Sakar, Sakar uh, from the uh, Windows Insider. And then uh, what, what do we... I should have prepped this, with, but I need my prepper magazine. Um to teach me how to prep. I got one more product. You're gonna are you gonna tell us one more secret to productivity experts? Yeah. So, Jen yeah. Jen Barrett uh, from WeWork. Um, let's see. What's the first thing Jen does when she wakes up? So first thing she does is look at her phone, read through all communications, check Slack and email. 
uh, yeah. New York Times and Twitter before getting out of bed. All right. Wow. Okay. Uh, and then what's her productivity philosophy? Here we go. I started out as a corporate lawyer. I became a fanatic over checklists. In fact, uh, the book I give out to is The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. And that's one of my favorite biggest hacks. Uh, you have to write everything down. And her best habit is meditation, Chris. That's how we're gonna get. You know what? Become the Here's most productive one people. Twenty eighteen. It, it occurred to me because I'm not. I'm not not productive. I'm not amazing at. It, but whatever. I have my ways. And one of the things that I do all the time is email myself. And I noticed that Google Inbox tries to stop you from doing this because I don't know if you guys use it on your phone, but you go in there and you type in your email address and says, "Are you emailing yourself? You shouldn't use do that. You should use Reminders in Inbox." And I've always resisted it because I'm like, I don't care about your proprietary little way of reminding myself. I want an inbox. Maybe I'll switch email clients. You don't know me. Anyway, yeah. whatever. I email myself anyway. This isn't about that feature because I don't use it. I just email myself. But I find that sometimes when I'm doing that, that I should just GTD, you know, getting things done or whatever. And I don't know anything about that philosophy. I haven't read the book. I don't know. But I was walking with my friend Tim and, and it was, I was like, oh, yeah, you got to do this little thing for me. You got to get in touch with the building manager and have them fire up something for us or whatever, which is the most minor little tiny task ever. All it does is require sending a message to a dude that's two sentences long. Me, I would have opened up my email client, I would have typed an email to myself, and, and I would have put in the subject line, email building manager about thing. And that's my way of remembering to do that. And I will do it, because I'm not inbox zero, but I'm pretty close. I knock out my emails pretty good. I would have later, I would have come back to my inbox, I would have seen that message sitting there, and I would do it just to archive the email and I would feel good about that. But it was like, why didn't I just write the email to begin with, you know? Hmm. And that, and because and Tim was doing it, and he's just like, stop. We're like literally walking to lunch, and he stopped on the corner of the sidewalk and just typed the, the whole email to the guy. It took him like 15 seconds and sent the thing. And I was like, I like that. You know, it's a little, you know, it might be a little weird depending on what kind of mixed company you're in, or whatever, but we're just like friends and co founders at this company. Like, I don't care if he takes 15 seconds to write an email. In fact, I appreciated it because it means there wasn't another like four hour delay between him actually doing it and getting me this thing that I needed from the building manager. So, anyway, productivity secret if it takes, and, and he says it comes from GTD or whatever, like if it takes less than like two minutes, just do it. Just do it. Just pause your life for two minutes, take the interruption, just do it. Yeah. Huh. All right. I'll try that. I, I am awful at email. My email's like, if you emailed me any time in the last year, chances are it's uh, just sitting in the dumpster. I changed my icon to a dumpster just to make sure. Wow. No. That stresses me out a little bit because you get things done. It's not like you're when, – when people say that, it's, it says to me, I'm not somebody that you can rely on. And I know that's not true about you, Dave. You're very reliable no. to your yeah. friends and family and business and all that stuff. So maybe when you say that, you just mean like, if you're a rando and I don't owe you nothing, your email's yeah. probably sitting there. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just it's just hard for me. Yeah, it's hard for me to check. But that's, and it's, it's like, cause it, you know, everything goes in there, like GitHub notifications, you know, some weird assignment on like, whatever asana or something you know it's just right. you know any every mention of anything and any sort of thing where my email is attached to my account user account every i get just emailed and then even when you had unsubscribe that does nothing you know mm -hmm. uh so my email is just like kind of just wild and so i i start checking my i don't keep my email application open because i did find that that's kind of like 
like an interruption, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. So I just close it and then I check it. And then I do very bad at grooming the inbox. Once, once I do check it, I get kind of uh, sidelined by YouTubes or whatever. So that's hey, life. I'm, I'm a grown man, almost 40 watching YouTubes. It's no wonder why this product just talking about productivity stuff is just, will be fascinating forever because it's, I even find it funny as I am the largely the person who tweets from real CSS tricks, you know, and it's just like yeah. this, it's a fairly widely followed Twitter account. And I, I sometimes I wonder, like, I don't know what people actually want out of it. So I'm trying to decide whether I care about that or if I should just continue posting whatever I want. But it's like, sometimes I'll notice like three days have gone by and I haven't tweeted a single thing about CSS. Now the site itself, whatever, it's all front end, whatever. It hasn't been just about CSS in a long time. But on that account, I'll tweet like design stuff, animation stuff, entrepreneurial stuff, stuff about meetings and productivity. And then I'm like, man, this really has divulged in <laughs> topic i wonder how pan, good that is pan tech tricks <laughs> it's like yeah every... but, I, but I, the productivity stuff everybody loves that so I, if it's a good one i'll tweet it I don't care. well it's supposed to it fits into everything I, you know getting work done i've found like with our company paravel uh we we have we have locked in to github issues as our productivity tool and but there is still like we kind of miss like base camp, you know, like hashing things out in big messages before we kind of like, you know, uh, move it over to GitHub. We kind of miss that. We kind of miss uh, we talk things over in Slack, but that's just kind of ephemeral, you know. Um, right. Well, there's uh, Notion, you know, man. You got to try it. <laughs> I guess Notion does have comments. So you can... Well, here, yeah, and there, I, I don't know. It's interesting. They used to, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm undecided. You could, like, file an RFC and then just be like, here, everybody, give me feedback, you know? I think that's a great place. Look at this question, though, by Sam. It goes right into this. So, yeah. assuming a client agency context, Dave, speaking right to you, what are the ingredients for a good, accurate, and stable scope of work? We can uh, uh, what we can do at the scoping stage to to ensure that we are making the thing that the client actually wants, needs, and use as intended. What have you learned about scope uh, that you'd wish you'd known earlier in your career? So now I can g- guess that you know the, why I think this is related. I guess is because we're talking about that you know f- hashing this thing out in Basecamp kind of first. You know, like maybe a little pre GitHub work there. I think Dave would probably say something something prototyping. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that like, yeah. what about this scoping of work? Can we tell Sam here? You know, I, I maybe have not the, I think Sam wants a very clear answer, uh, but I do probably don't have it. Um, my answer would be we've, we, we've sort of like given up on this idea that you can nail scope. Exactly. Um, you have objectives. We basically sell our time, like big chunks of our time so that we can, in like, so that we can like get into a project, identify the needs and possibly like the solutions, like, Oh, what kind of CMS, like, what do you want out of a CMS? What do you need? Okay. What, you know, what options are available? Like kind of that discovery phase. I I think that discovery phase helps with the scope of work Mm -hmm. and inside that discovery phase, it's also beneficial to kind of, you know, if, if you like sit around and sketch something out on paper, like, Oh, you could have this, this, and this, 
like why not spin up a code pen we that's what we do we spin up code pens and like draft it out draft out our ideas in a code pen and then we kind of like shop it around like does this look like something you know we can obviously tweak type and colors and everything but is this this feels like a good vibe or you know what, what's your reaction to this um that way you know and if they thumbs up it's like okay cool uh, like we know ex- now that we have like a very rough prototype sketch to prototype sort of thing, we can like, we, we can, uh, build this out for you in X number of hours or days. Um, and then the, uh, but then, you know, it, it's always like needs grow. I think there's like a lot of kind of, <laughs> psychology and and studies about how just the needs will fill the like vacuum of time. Um, so I think you just, you almost, I've learned I do really well with dates, like end dates. Like we want a website by, you know, four Tuesdays from now to me, to me, I can be like, Whoa, okay, here's what I think we can get done. You know, like, so, so if you set a time limit on it, now it's kind of reverse, right? Like, like somebody usually says they want a website and then you say, okay, let me figure out how long, you know, describe it to me and then tell me how long, you know, or, and then I'll tell you how long that takes and how much money that costs. But, you know, if you think about the inverse there, like, when do you want your thing by? Okay, cool. Here's what I think we can do in that amount of time. Like, I think it's easier to scope if you just Both said, those are great. I love yeah. that. And I like that you brought up. I heard Cameron Mald mention this the other day, too. And, uh, 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 you know, whatever. Even he said, you know, not an original Cameron thought, but he put a good point on it, which was that w- the work expands to fill the space you have available for it. And that goes on a day-to-day basis as well. If you're just like, I'm going to just kick butt today. I'm going to work 16 hours. You'll definitely find a way to fill all those hours. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like necessarily twice as much will get done. It's just kind of like just a, a work will always expand to fill that space, which is fascinating. So maybe the way to stop that is just to say, no, you know, this this is the end date for this thing. So you need to scope what you're doing to to fix by that end date. Woo. Or 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 I mean, get better at the estimating part, which is the trickier than it looks. Yeah. The, the time thing is sort of you know, it is tough too. uh, you can, um, you, you basically sit like the, sorry, I'm, my brain's like churning, churning, churning here. The time thing is, is interesting because you can just set a date and then work backwards from there. You know, I think, you know, in our brains, we're probably like, the hard, oh. don't you think the hard part will reveal itself right away when you have that? Cause sometimes that's unclear as you're, as you're trying to scope these things out and somebody's like, well, we need a, a social login system. Somebody else who's not really familiar with them would be like, e, that feels out of scope to me. But you can be like, mm-hmm. well, but we're already using Firebase on this project. So it's kind of like a one-liner. Uh, and so you're like, okay, cool. Oh, but it, it actually, it turns out that being able to like duplicate this record from one account to another account, that, that, that's actually the hard part. We've sussed that out as the, and that's the thing that's going to be, have to be scrapped or we're going to have to reevaluate this project. Like what you need to figure out is what's the, what's the real time sink. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, listened to a podcast. Uh, this is, uh, mm. I, I can recommend this podcast. Uh, somebody drew town on Twitter, uh, recommended this podcast to me. It's called, you are not so smart. 
Um, and they have, it's amazing. They, they cover this machine bias in episode 115, which we've been talking a lot about robots and machine biases and stuff like that. Uh, they have like moral arguments and tribal psychology, which all kind of like, uh, uh, relates to, you know, kind of (laughs) current, uh, political stuff, but they had a, um, oh, is it, it's gotta be here, but they had, I feel like it was in this podcast. They had a thing. Uh, about estimation and like why we're always wrong when we estimate like we're very yeah. bad humans at estimating. do you remember like the gist um, of why that is it's it's something like the um the is optimism like- bias does that make sense uh so it's this uh it's this idea that you are kind of better than you are you know uh you know sure i say chris how long does it take to blog a blog post dude like five minutes See, and you probably have done that in your life and you probably could, but like, you're just kind of maybe like just a tad overconfident in the actual effort it requires. For sure. It's that old thing. Nobody thinks they're a dick. Nobody thinks they're a bad person. Nobody thinks they're slow. Nobody thinks they're dumb. Yeah. So the kind of way I think to get around it is this idea of, of like, the basically the only way to estimate correctly is to uh, have a history, like a catalog, like of similar projects estimate based on that. Like you, you have like, Oh, you've made 10 blog posts about this length and it took me this amount of time. Now I can estimate. And there's even, I got, I think this was you, you are not so smart. This could have been a different, uh, <laughs> this could have been a Freakonomics or something too. I have to find this out the exact one, but it's just this idea that, oh yeah, it was a Freakonomics scratch that the, all you are not so smart is very good, but this is Freakonomics. And it was a, uh, here's why all your projects are always late and what to do about it. And basically like, this is very common in, in civic projects and things like that. Like how long does it take to build healthcare.gov and people estimate, Oh, it's this much or they, uh, or they'll overestimate. But in countries like Denmark, you have to like basically now supply like budgets and like, what did you estimate? How long did it actually take? How much were you over budget? Uh, historically, like three similar projects where that you're basing, you have to like show your work like on, on what you're estimating. And that's the best way to do it. So, the, I think the thing is you just basically have to have experience and that's how you know how long a thing is going to take. So. Mm. Just a little minor anecdotal evidence before we go on that I would say that the more, I, I hate to say this because it sounds wrong, but the more people involved with the, with the estimating and even the project itself, generally kind of the faster it's going to go, rather than like split up into small teams and focus on individual small projects simultaneously, the grouping, banding together and thinking about a problem all together yields better results. I think that probably doesn't, you know, there's limits to the the scale both up and down to that, but I'm kind of living that right now and that it was so tempting for me to, to be like, let's tackle these five things. You're on this, you're on this, you're on this, you're on this is going to lead to way more inaccuracies for how long something's going to take because it's just one person taking a stab at it, rather than five people trying to more split it into smaller tasks and, and knowing exactly what's kind of going on there. It just seems yeah. to me that like have don't just have one person try to estimate the project. Have everybody in one document where you're trying to hash all that out. 
Yeah, it's like a checks and balances. Um, I mean, otherwise one person's going to wipe out and mess it all up. So Quality will uh, be higher. Anyway, should we do this next one, Steve? Yeah, Steve Polito writes in, uh, congrats on 301. Yes, we made it. Uh, <laughs> is there a way uh, for me to write unit and integration tests for WordPress? I've done work in Rails and make sure uh, to write tests to ensure everything is working. This is especially helpful as I build out new features. For example, I'd like to ensure custom queries and custom functions are working properly without having mm-hmm. to manually check. Right now, there's no automated way for me to know everything on my WordPress site is working correctly when I update a program uh, plugin or refactor code. Specifically, this is what I'm hoping to get answered. If I can write tests for WordPress, where do I write them? And in what language do I write them? Do I need to create number two? Do I need to create a test database with test data to do this? Mm -hmm. Number three, Chris, do you write any tests for CSS tricks? Just curious uh, because you roll out themes so frequently. And four, why isn't writing automated tests an industry standard for WordPress developers? There's a lot there. Um, can you unit test WordPress? Yes, WordPress itself is tested. It uses PHP units for PHP and QUnit for JavaScript. I don't know. I would look at exactly how they write their tests and stuff. Unit testing, largely, remember, is here's a function. I want to, you know ensure that it spits out the data that I'm expecting that it spits out. So I'm going to write a test that gives it some data and then expects on the way out that same data. And if it stops doing that, then I'll be alerted when that test happens. PHP is just a back-end programming language. That's what PHP unit is for. If you have a bunch of custom functions that are required for your website to do what it does, yeah, you probably should write some tests for it, I guess. I can say that I never have in WordPress land. That's probably a little bit embarrassing, but kind of believe it or not, CSS Tricks really isn't that complicated of a site. For I try to keep it as kind of vanilla or off the shelf as I can, where I just use big popular plugins. I use the kind of WordPress standard way of doing loops and stuff. You know, if CSS Tricks in some way doesn't look like a Uh, I don't know, a WordPress site that you're used to. It's just because I take control over the HTML and CSS largely and do whatever I want there, you know, which, of course, anybody can. I don't have any amazing skills there. But it's not like I've ripped WordPress to shreds to do what I do on on CSS tricks. Not really at all. So uh, there's just not a lot. I don't feel like there's that much for me to test, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I... I don't really have much. I I've been thinking about like um you know, visual regression testing and things like that. Um Puppeteer is a new thing. That one blows my mind. It Google. seems like there'd be a false positive 80 times a day. Yeah, I guess like you I think you can set thresholds, but um I think like or you just set up like a test page basically. But I don't yeah, I don't know how like you're like did you accidentally ship a closing div in your paragraph yeah. tag and that closed out the article <laughs> div you know i don't yeah. know and then like maybe shouldn't that just be like a html validation test not yeah but yeah. maybe um i'm terrible i'm probably not the person to ask on this um so you know here's a bug i just had on css tricks a couple days ago i just did nothing whatsoever and the titles of uh, in, in CSS Tricks, there's an almanac, and it has entries for CSS uh, selectors and properties and how they all work and stuff. There's an article for 
you know, 98% of them that exist in the world, I'd say. Uh, and they're just in the, what it looked like, there was a header, but there's like breadcrumbs before the header and then the header. And so you could be like, oh, this is the article for like the before and after element, pseudo elements or whatever. Cool. It just disappeared. It wasn't there at all. You could see the padding around the box, but there was nothing there. I touched nothing. I deployed nothing. It just was gone. And I was like, that is bizarre. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is just to check. I'm going to pull the repo and I'm going to just look in the file where that header is. And I'm like, oh, it's not like that was deleted. There's the code that outputs that is supposed to be there. But look at that code. The code that X does it is uses essentially a WordPress plugin to do it. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Yoast SEO, which is this kind of comprehensive uh, SEO plugin that you just kind of install and it outputs a bunch of SEO crap for you. You kind of hopefully you don't have to think about it too much. Uh, but one of the things, weirdly enough, that's bundled with that plugin is some ability to output breadcrumbs. And I like breadcrumbs because my almanac pages are sometimes buried three, four pages deep just because the taxonomy made sense to, you know, make them kind of alphabetical and then whether it's a selector or not and the fact that it's in an almanac and be able to back up those breadcrumbs just made decent UX sense to me. But it just stopped working. So the first thing I did was like, crap, this is this plugin is obviously broken. I Googled around to see if it was broken. There was a few threads, but there wasn't any good lead in how to fix it. I tweeted at them, of course, as one does. Oh, yeah. Uh, Rage and then eventually, yeah. Found, <laughs> eventually found that um, the plugin automatically updated itself. I've been experimenting with that to having uh, Jetpack do that for me. It's like a little bit with that connection to your site. You can just kind of toggle a toggle and pick which plugins you want to automatically update. And I found it a blessing for that Yoast SDO because it friggin' updates twice a week, it feels like. So I was like, mm -hmm. fine, just keep it up to date. They shipped a bug, and the bug was that um, the setting turned itself off. I don't know what other settings it screwed up, but it was just a toggle switch buried in the WordPress admin. I just had to go into the admin, find where that was buried in their settings, and toggle it back on, and it worked. But how do you write a test for that? Maybe visual regressing testing would have found it, but it wouldn't have helped me find the solution. Yeah, that's true. Like, I guess I, I do like the idea. It would probably be something I would run locally, you know, just that would crawl my site and check that pages are up and or that features exist that I expect, or, you know, maybe that's less visual, but just like a crawler and then like assert whatever some div exists or something like that. Um, just because with things like Yoast or, or like, you know, those breadcrumb plugins or like, you know, your mobile dropdown navigation plugin you installed five years ago, uh, those things can break. So um, it's probably worth checking out, um, backing up, especially if you feel like every time you update something breaks uh, that, you know, I mean, maybe you just need to like, you know, sit down for a moment, write out what has broken in the past, like where things have broken down and then work from there. Like where, how can I write a test for each of these kind of failures that have happened? But I would probably start locally with some sort of like crawler kind of thing. I'm looking right now at like jest with puppeteer i like the jest uh look and feel um but uh yeah i would probably yeah i don't know here's one from jest <laughs> are you ready describe yeah. slash home page you know uh um page await global browser new page await page dot go to google.com it should load without error async you know and then 
Like That's good. Just, I like, like that just, one. Don't we talk about that in a show a lot while ago? Like, some of your integration testing should at least warn you if you're throwing errors. Like, there should just be one test that says, like, did any errors get thrown? Yes? Yeah. That's a problem. Yes. Look at that. Okay, we should do that. So, you know, and I mean, I would hope, you know, you can do it locally, too. You have, like, a local thing. But, you know, every, I think we all can be grown-ups and admit most of our WordPresses uh, aren't always uh, local to deployment. So I think, you know, I, th- I would, but I would probably run a local tester, you know, and that might give you some confidence when you update something, you know, you just go into your, yeah. your test, you know, projects dot test my website and run it. So ideally, yeah, that's the one thing. Writing the test is one thing, but tying it to your processes so that you run it for sure. Every time is another, that's a whole thing here. I got an idea though. If you got, Serverless. this is how you should write. Serverless. Uh, be, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Continuous no, integration. Uh, let's call this, this, this is how it works. It's visual regression testing. It always runs or whatever. You have it tied up nicely. And if it has a problem, it pops up a full screen thing. And you look at on the left is what it expected to look like. And on the right is what it does look like now. And there's two big buttons on the right that says, um, this is a problem. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fix it or whatever. So halt. And this is the new normal. And if you click, this is the new normal, it's it's all good. It, it will replace the the expectation with the thing. So if you just change some font sizes or whatever, it'll trigger an error. But, so we'll call the plugin, this is the new normal. Mm-hmm. There you That's go. That's it. I wrote it. It probably already exists. All right. Uh, hopefully that helps. I, I Sorry, I, I'm bad at testing. I need to up my game. That's actually, I think it was like this morning in the shower, I was like, I should finish that thing so I can write tests for that thing. And anyway, uh, I'll, I'll, how about this shop talk? I promise I'll write a test soonish once I quit moving houses and then, um, I'll let you know kind of what I settled on. There you go. Okay, cool. I wrote one just the other week, so I'll share mine too. It's a good one. It involves Ajax. Shay Scotton. Hey guys, I'm a front-end web developer and I'm constantly reading about all the new amazing CSS and JavaScript improvements coming out that I so badly would like to use, but it seems to me that IE 11 is always standing in my way. IE came out in 2013 and because it will always be the last version of IE, nobody seems to upgrade. What do you think about that? What will cause the final end to people using IE and what can, what can we expect that? Pretty common front-end design question. Maybe the number one question of all time in over the years in uh, maybe not on this show, but just in the general world of front end development, which is, you know, I can't use that because browsers or whatever. It probably wouldn't hurt to give a shout out to Jen Simmons here, who who's been doing a kind of series on YouTube about a lot of layout stuff. But uh, I noticed some of her videos were uh, uh, targeted at things like at supports and fallbacks in the idea of resilient CSS. I think that's brilliant. Please go watch those videos. Uh, knowing that just because IE 11 doesn't mean that you have to toss out any idea of using anything modern or progressive at all. That's just, it's a false dichotomy. I think I used that correctly. 
it's not not necessarily the case. Another thing, another common answer to be to be fully aware of, and I should say I applaud you, Shay, for the idea that if you work on a project and you have a lot of users using IE 11 because that's backed up by the fact that you collect data on that and look at that and see that and your boss sees that and all that, and, and you're like, we can't use X, Y, and Z because IE 11, that means you're doing your job. That's great. You can't, you know, as developers, you can't just be like, ah, screw them. It's it's 12.9% of our user base, but I don't like it. I'm going to do something else to, I don't know, to deliver them a crap experience. No, I mean, if I like it when people say this stuff because it means you care about your users. So there's that angle too. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I think you're outpacing about... 90% of all other developers by just opening it in IE 11. I think you've, you've already, you've already ex put yourself at the top of the class here. Um, I, for, <laughs> there are things about IE that are broken and will always be broken. And at the speed at which JavaScript is progressing, you know, it's going to be very, or appear to be more and more broken as JavaScript gets more and more better. Um, there is, but I got some bad news. Uh oh, okay. bad news. Uh -oh. The second IE uh, 11 is dead, Safari 8 is still around. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So there, there's going to be like a bad browser lingering around. It's maybe some weird, you know, Galaxy phone that never, that like on Verizon that froze their upgrades at Chrome 48 or something like that, Chromium 48. You know, you, the, you just kind of like there's always going to be bad browsers. So we, we're never going to escape, in my mind, my, my realism brain. <laughs> we're never going to escape the browsers. Uh, the, I, we're never going to enter the utopia that there's always evergreen browsers all the time everywhere. Right, right. It's uh, just my... because IE dies someday in the future doesn't mean this conversation is over. It yeah, absolutely I mean, will I, never I be. I work on a client's website and they have you know, a lot of uh, versions of Chrome. I think I counted like 21 versions of Chrome in the top 50 browsers, you know? And it just, it your work's not done here just because like, like you believe in the last two versions myth. That's like super not true. So um, anyway, I, I think like, you know, IE there's a few things you can do about it. There's a, like a handful of polyfills on my blog. I wrote a post about, uh, the pitfalls of IE nine. Um, like what are the problems? Cause I was really struggling as like IE nine is a bad, um, mm -hmm. it's just not great. It, it was good at its time, but it's just not great. Um, what can we do? Like, what are the problems? That's what I did as I sat down and I wrote down specifically, what are the problems with this browser? And I came up with a list and there are workarounds for some things like match media. You can fix, uh, you know, class list, you know, in JavaScript you can fix. And, and there's a few things, you know, a few handful of like small micro polyfills that you can inject that will fix up these older browsers. Um, but it's not going to be perfect, perfect, perfect. So, um, I don't know what to, I mean, I don't know. I think IE will eventually meet a death when um, on the next like big security outbreak. So uh, mm. look forward to that uh, whenever that is. Um, I, that because 
these older browsers are more difficult to upgrade and maintain and build, you know. There's um, a free blog post in here for somebody who could, why don't you look at the trajectory of browser usage and the trajectory of browser releases and then fast forward two years and predict what the conversation is going to be. Like, guess what we're going to talk about on Chop Talk Show? The, like, what are people going to be pissed about? Because you could do it. I think with 90% with accuracy, you could predict what things we're bitching about. And you could do it. You could do it a year out, two years out, three years out. I think you could probably do it with pretty solid accuracy looking at API support across things. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's like, uh, you know, something's not going to support, you know, CSP 2.1 or something. And that's like a, you know big deal or there's going to be yeah. something that doesn't support I, what is the big one like uh houdini you know it only has the yeah. paint it doesn't have yeah. the layout or you know it's just thing. chrome now that has resize observer and people are just loving resize observer so oh, it, if you're talking yeah but we're talking just chrome right now so we talk a slow release schedule for all the other browsers it finally catches up what are the browsers that won't ever get it or whatever look at the usage of those and yeah we're going to be bitching about resize observer Yep. And so, and that's going to be like on, you know, older phones probably. Cause I, I think, you like, know, what you should look at, look at that release list for what it takes to be a amp replacement now. Cause there's like, oh, isn't there like yeah. five technologies Feature on there? Policy. None. Uh, Oh gosh. What are the other ones? Um, yeah. Anyway, there's like 10, five different Web APIs. packaging something. Yeah. There's five APIs. You're, uh, device and browser have to support to be amp approved for the Google carousel. So we're going to be upset about that in five years. So, uh, so anyway, sorry, Shay, I hopefully that isn't a major bummer, but I, I do think IE will go away and it'll be pretty okay after that, but it won't be perfect. Is kind of my feeling there. So, <laughs> This episode of Shop Talk Show is brought to you in part by CodePen. You know, we still have pro plans. You can still sign up for a paid account on CodePen, which opens up all kinds of possibilities of things you can do on CodePen that you can't with a free account, like, you know, drag and drop to upload assets if you need, like, image hosting or a place to chuck your CSS and JavaScript or whatever kind of files. And that works in CodePen projects as well, you know, which is kind of more of a full-blown IDE kind of thing where you have a sidebar of files. So if you haven't checked that out, it's a little different than pens on CodePen in that you have a whole file system to work with, which is a little bit more appealing if you're building something a little bit more complex. We just finished a rewrite of a lot of the real-time stuff on CodePen. So, for example, features that you get with CodePen Pro like collab mode and professor mode, which allow you to, like, for example, collab mode is like, I make a room and then I send it to my friend. They don't even have to have a CodePen account. And we're real-time coding together so you can see each other's cursors, see each other's, you know, settings, changes, and, uh, uh, of course, the code that they write and the preview is all updating in real-time. So it's pair programming, but within CodePen, all you got to do is send somebody a URL. Very similar to professor mode, but professor mode is designed to be one way. There's one teacher and they see absolutely everything you do uh, within it. And they both have chat rooms, you know, but professor mode, you can send to, you know, hundreds of people if you want to. And they can all watch you program in real time. Very cool. Uh, another random thing, I don't want to go on forever, is but CodePen is doing weekly challenges now. So if you go to codepen.io slash uh, uh, challenges, you'll see 
you know, what's happening that week. And it's just a prompt for you to level up and learn something and share that the whole community is building at once. So that's kind of cool. Uh, uh, talk to you later. Jake Ub writes in, uh, do you think browsers would, could implement default lazy loading of images directly in the browser? Would it be possible without breaking the web? Maybe uh, with a new attribute uh, that you can add to image that must be loaded like a one pixel by one pixel gif for tracking scripts. Uh, thanks for the show. There I is, think there is, isn't there? There's yeah, some like talk afoot, I believe. Uh, um, right? Uh, what, how do you understand it at this moment? Right. What I mostly feel is embarrassment that I didn't... Uh... I didn't look at this because I just saw it was one of those like somebody t tweets something and it takes you to some like internal Chrome discussion thread thing where people are talking about the thing and it's I don't I don't know how to like engage with it but it looks promising you know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, it came up really relatively recently in my Twitter sphere. Um, so there's kind of two things happening. Chrome is switching its default decoding, um, or it's adding like like a different type of decodings, like async and sync and uh, something else. Or, and it's basically this, that you can like, like, do you want to decode this image now or later? Like, almost like JavaScript. Do you want to decode it now or later? Um, and that's going to kind of be almost like a lazy load thing. Um, but I, I did read some, I should like. My God, I found this article on Slashdot. How long has it been, slash dot? Um, but there was some sort of like, um, there was some talk about making image lazy loading. Well, we could back up a little bit. Can they do it? Absolutely. Should they do it? Absolutely. All right, let's go. <laughs> so let's 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 table it for now. The point is, yes, they can. Yes, they should. We'll follow this technology story as it develops. <laughs> <laughs> beep, 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 beep. I'm going to just keep, um, yeah, there's also, yeah, okay, 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 okay. Nick Lemon writes in, I'm working on a rather large internal CSS framework that will be used across a wide variety of sites. Some with the company branding, others will have a different color scheme entirely. All that said, we're having trouble coming up with a good SAS variable naming system. We can't store them with names like dollar sign red because of themes. Something generic like dollar sign primary would possibly work, but it's just not very descriptive. What are your thoughts on generic themable SAS color variable name? So because themes means that like you, you want to be able to like define these at some kind of top level and then have a theme load that file, but override it, like rewrite it with something else. So yeah, primary does make sense because you could override it with anything and primary the name seems to work fine. Uh, I think when I first read this, I was thinking about like, wow, that's, a, you know, there's a lot of, maybe you're worried about colors in the global namespace and there's just too many of them or something. So I, I probably would suggest that because SAS supports the idea of maps, that that's not the worst idea to use kind of like your color theme as a, as one variable. And then, you know, basically it looks like a piece of JSON essentially. And you just store all your colors inside of a map. That way your, your kind of global namespace is clean, but it doesn't look like that's necessarily what you're asking here. It's, it's thinking about how you, how you name things like that. And you don't like red and you don't like primary. So I'm not sure what to, what to tell you here. Yeah, I've tried that primary, secondary, tertiary, quaternary, or what you like. Yeah. Like after three colors, it gets really tough. Um, 
and then it's always weird. It's like border, you know, <laughs> border color, you know, lighten, uh, uh, quaternary color, uh, yeah. you know, 25%. And it just kind of like starts like fumbling, I feel like. Um, Can you just name them what they are? How many are there? I mean, it does it, is this ridiculously unacceptable to say like header background color, header text color? Sidebar background color, sidebar text color, link color, footer link color. Is that like going to be unscalable or is the explicitness of that work for you? You know, we I don't think we can give you the perfect answer without seeing exactly uh, what you're in here. But I think I've seen that work before is that you're not really delivering something for like programmer ergonomics as much as you are like creating a UI for someone to come in and flop some color values like a theming interface. It just happens to use SAS to do it. So being really explicit with those names means that you've essentially built a form that somebody's filling out to colorize their website, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know what? So what I'm doing on my site is like I have, I'm using... Um, custom properties, CSS custom properties to style my site and change themes. Uh, I have settled on kind of naming it based on what it kind of is used for, like dash dash BG for background, dash dash BG, uh, or dash dash text for the text color, dash dash headings for the heading color, um, things like that. And, and, and you kind of, it gets verbose. Um, the problem, the trade-off here, um, while it's very scalable and you know exactly what you're changing the color of when you're changing colors, um, yeah. the, the trade-off is you always need another property. So you're, you're like, okay, I'm going to go, you know, make the footer black or something. Yeah. Oh, I need footer link, co- footer text color. And then you're like, oh, I need footer link color because the link needs to be different than the text. And then, yeah. oh, I need footer uh, text decoration uh, as a variable too because I'm going to underline. So, like, I want the theme to, like, underline the links here. So you end up chasing um, things quite a bit. I almost, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> it, it's it's manageable. I mean, I'm running, like, five or six themes on my site pretty well, and I can kind of modify it. So I do like it, but um, it, it's tough. Um, I, there's, I don't think there's a perfect solution. I think there's always trade-offs. I think that's about all we can say here. You know, it's just like, a, you know, naming is hard, quite literally. It's hard for these reasons. I just read an article about this. I wonder if it matters to you in any way. But it was uh, uh, Paul Cass writes in about, he was basically wondering about GDPR, which um, comes into effect, I think, in like two weeks, uh, which is, it's a European Union thing. Uh, God, I heard it described. How did I hear it described as like privacy requirements with teeth or mm-hmm. something like that like if you're if european union people you know which if you're using creating some kind of software as a service is almost guaranteed that uh, you're serving some people from europe um you need to kind of comply to these rules and there's they they seem reasonable as you kind of go through them they're like 
You know, you need to be really clear about your privacy policy and what information you collect on users. You need to have a process for people to uh, uh, request that data if they want to. You need to have a process for people if they want that data absolutely deleted. You have to be able to do that. You cannot assume that their privacy, you know, when they sign up, they need to explicitly agree to that privacy policy, stuff like that. And it seems like, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, and then if you don't do it, that you you know, there's that's the teeth part is that you you stand to uh, to face some some fines and stuff. And I'm not sure how that happens. I mean, I'm a Delaware corporation. Can Europe sue me? Do I? How does that work? Where do we go to court? Berlin? I don't know. You know. Yeah. <laughs> how how do we resolve this issue in in who? Yeah. Like, or who do you cut the check to? What what does this happen? You know, can you not? And the checks, in- the checks are, are twenty million dollars. That's what a, a fine is, because it's something like two percent of something, 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 or twenty million dollars, whichever is higher. And you're like, well, it's probably twenty million pounds for the yeah, because it or whatever the one with the yeah, I think it's it's pounds. L's, yeah. L's, fancy cur- cursive L's <laughs> is the currency they excuse use. Excuse my excuse my my ignorance. There. Or yeah, it's the, or the super E, which has Two two bars in the middle. Um, That's what it is. That's what it is. Super Whatever e. the super e is. Yeah. Oh God! Please unsubscribe. I'm so terrible. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Okay. So th- should we get to? Did we read the question? We. Uh, it was basically like, what's the plan? And the plan is to I don't know to to, to 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 do the best we can and see what the fallout is. I know we have an open issue for it, and I think we're pretty close, but probably needs some work to. It's. A European Union thing, right? And and it's so if your website is being served to European customers, EU customers, you have to abide by this law, right? It's just like the cookies law, basically. Right. So I'm gonna give you, a you say this site requires cookies, so you need to give cookies. I mean, that's pretty intense, and it almost actually puts like a technical technical requirement onto websites that you need to, um, you know, basically like you need to basically do some GOIP things to detect, you know, yeah, like that's a thing European too, but users. it's, it's kind of like, there's such a generally good idea that you should just probably just do it for everybody. Well, and isn't it, it's like, a not the cookies thing. I don't think that's not, that's old school, isn't it? You don't have to do that. Oh, what's that? Unless I'm wrong, not a lawyer. I don't think the thing where you have to have a giant bar across the screen that says this site uses cookies. I I was under the impression that that was the law at one point and now isn't anymore. And it's weird to still see it, I guess, because it's so obnoxious. But I could be wrong about that. Yeah, wow. This is going to be very interesting for... It's a thing because it's like, why roll the dice with your whole business? You get a 20 million super euro... (laughs) that you're done that's it goodbye goodbye yeah this is this is a this is a, so you need explicit consent no more like just it's a good idea i agree way, yeah um you have to agree to the terms of service and privacy policy right just mm-hmm. just to use the website that one's pretty easy because you just, just – you, you, they have to check a box. I bet half of companies do that anyway. Of course, that A-B testing would suggest that you don't do that because slightly less people will not check that box and thus not sign up for your website. So it's at odds with that type of thing, you know? Yeah. What does – if I do not collect any data, uh, 
I'm wondering what the use case is there. If you're just text on the web, but you probably uh, are. Probably, probably if, nothing, man. This is really about user data. So it, but probably does, it doesn't apply to you. Does this have for Google Analytics? Does Google well, Analytics suppose, yeah. do this, or do I do? Google this? Analytics says you are not allowed to track use identifiable user data. That's a terms of service thing with Google Analytics. So I would think it doesn't apply here. But I, again, I could be wrong. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Interesting. All right. The hardest part, I think, is the, some of the like the process stuff, which is like you better have a – if somebody emails you or whatever and says, I want 100% of all my data, are you prepared to do that? Oh, that's a part of it too. Interesting. I can make that happen. Yeah, because part of it can be, and I hate to, I'm not trying to like give everybody the easy way out here, but part of that process can be, please send us an email. So as long as you have a working email, well, now you have an interface for people to ask for that. And if you have a database and can use MySQL or whatever the thing is, you can export their stuff in some chunk and email it back to them, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, and ideally if it happens enough or whatever, you build a workflow to make that a little easier and nicer and stuff. And it's the right thing to do anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious. I, we should probably get a GDPR expert on this show. Yeah. Not good, me. Not me. Not me. All right. Well, hopefully uh, that was a, a – we'll, we'll put that on the old books because that would be very interesting to, to check out. So hopefully uh, you're not mm-hmm. sued before then. Yay. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. I hate to say this, but the last time they had a big thing, there was a big like Europe thing we had. Remember, there was some, or maybe it was just the UK or something. There was some weird tax we had to account for or something. And it was very confusing. Yeah, was it VAT? Was that the thing? Mm-hmm. And then everybody was like, I do not know how to deal with this. And a lot of people just didn't. And then they're like, oh, just kidding. You don't have to do anything. Ah. So I don't know that this is going to be rolled back in the same way. I would not plan on that. But it happened before. Just saying. Yeah, I've had to deal with that tax. That almost broke me one time. It was <laughs> a European e-commerce site, and it was just like, oh, boy, I'm – this is difficult. So, Because every, com- every country has a different VAT rate, and different countries ugh, in the EU treat each other differently. And, ugh, it's – yeah. It's all like – it. that was difficult. So, anyway. All right. Well, hopefully we can get let's dig in. Uh, if anyone sees any uh, awesome posts on it, please post it in the comments because uh, this does seem like it's very important and happening like now, now, now. So anyway, Chris, we should wrap up. Thank you, dear listener, for downloading this in your podcatcher choice. Be sure to star heart favorite up. That's how people find out about the show. Follow us on Twitter at Shop Talk Show for tweets a month. And uh, if you play banjo, uh, send us your banjo jokes. And if you Oh, I don't know where I'm going with this. If you hate your job, head over to shoptalkshow.com slash jobs and get a brand new one because people want to hire people like you. Hey, we got a job opening to tell you about this week on Shop Talk Show. The place is called North Street, the URL being northstreetcreative.com. Go check it out. It's an independently owned branding design and web development studio. It's in New York City in lower Manhattan. This is a dream job, I'm sure, for a lot of you out there. This looks really great. Go check out their website because you're like, whoa, y'all do great work. So it's so nice to be able to like step into a place like that where you know there's just talent about 
around uh, uh, and great work is being produced all the time. They're looking really for a lead WordPress developer. Uh, so the what you need to have is the ability to be past sketch files, essentially, coming from a design department and be able to engineer a custom WordPress theme based off that design. So you're using both back-end and front-end technologies. You'll be working closely with writers and designers and other developers, and you'll be overseeing you know, development projects uh, and all other initiatives. So really cool. You should be able to squash bugs and, you know, be, be familiar with Sketch and pulling those things in. You're building WordPress themes with advanced custom fields. It's a good way to go, honestly. Uh, and all that kind of stuff. You know, you know this job. I bet there's tons of you listeners out there that that are perfect for this kind of thing. So this is a lead job. You should have lots of experience. You should be familiar with WordPress. You should have strong PHP, JavaScript, CSS, HTML skills, good in Git, good in all this stuff. So th that's you. If you're just like a dang good developer and you're looking for your opportunity, you want to do it in New York, you want to do great work, you want to skyrocket your career, check this job posting out. Uh, uh, and check out North Street, NorthStreetCreative.com. Chris. Shop Talk. <laughs> ShopTalkShow.com. Hey.